and I just got off the phone. One of the Stonebrook Six, one of my best friends in the world, was killed last night. His husband, Anthony, called me, voice raw with fatigue and emotion. He said that the police didn't know the details of what happened yet, but last night, Elsa's remains were found in the parking garage of the building where he works. Where he worked. They told Anthony that they would have thought it was an explosion, but there were no signs of any fire or damage to anything other than Ellis himself. They would have said it was an obvious murder, but they don't know how someone could crush and dismember a human being that thoroughly without heavy machinery, much less spread him across the 12-foot ceiling of floor 3B in that monolithic parking structure like a thick layer of chunky peanut butter. Anthony was crying again by that point, so I assumed I had just heard him wrong. Then he repeated it, his voice coming in hitching gasps. A co-worker had come out just a few minutes after Alice to find my friend dripping and plopping back onto the relatively clean concrete below where he had been pressed into the ceiling. Anthony said that the only way they knew it was him initially was due to the security footage of him going out towards his car. The video cut out as he approached the area, and when it returned, the timestamp showed 30 seconds had passed without footage. The girl who found him was out less than five minutes later, and no one else had entered or left the garage in that time so far as they could tell. Crushed personal effects and initial blood work confirmed it was him. I could feel myself teetering between arguing with Anthony that this must be wrong and breaking into tears myself. I had just seen Alice two days ago when we were all together mourning the first of our circle of friends to die. Those of us that were flying back out to Chicago had ridden together to the airport, and after Mills had caught another flight back to Austin, me and Alice had just hung out at an airport restaurant until my flight came up. Our mood had been sad because of Cassidy's funeral and everything that followed, but we were trying to make the most of the time we had left. Alice was telling me about his wedding and showing me pictures. I still felt guilty for not making it in person, but I had just started my new job at the time. Alice, like always, understood and worked to make me feel better about it. I told him some time about the girl I'd been dating. The relationship was still improving after six months, which was a record for me. Alice said that very thing, but then quirked an eyebrow at me. He asked me if I'd realized how I was looking at Mills the past couple of days, and I tried to play it off like he was joking, but I knew he wasn't. In that subtle way he had, he was trying to nudge me to consider if I was still in love with Millicent, like I had been when we were growing up. But my head was too full already from everything else, so I pushed the question away, gave him a hug, and headed to my flight. That was the last time I talked to Alice before something tore him apart. I hung up with Anthony after an hour, my throat raw and a feeling of exhaustion weighing down my every step as I went to the bedroom and collapsed onto the bed. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't, as though the engine of my heart was too busy burning through gallons of fear and guilt to allow even a drop of sadness into its chambers. I tried to sleep, but after a while I gave up on that as well and began to write this account. I need to get it all away from me. I realize that I've jumped in the middle of all this, rather than the start. 
I'm tired and not thinking straight. Let me provide a bit of background, and then I'll talk about Cassidy's funeral and everything that happened after it. I had four best friends growing up. Ellis Macri, Millicent Davis, Thomas Wall, and Cassidy Friel. I think we were unique among many groups of childhood friends in that we all came together at the same time, Mrs. Weber's third grade classroom, and we were all equally close to each other. Aside from occasional childish arguments, we never fought with each other as we got older. We somehow managed to safely navigate the choppy hormonal scenes of two pairs of hetero guys and girls, and a third guy that was gravitating towards by curiosity. This is important, because as I start to question my memories about so many things, I keep returning to my idea of my friendships with the people closest to me. Ellis, who was always the kindest of us, Mills was the smartest, and kept the rest of us out of trouble on several occasions. Thomas, who was always so moody around others, but so light and happy when it came to just the five of us. And Cassidy, who was shy and sweet and, now I think, died terrified. I don't have any close family left. My father died when I was 15, and my mother doesn't like talking to me anymore. My old friends fall into two categories. College friends that I really keep in touch with beyond social media, and my best friends from my days in Stonebrook. It sounds strange, because we didn't meet at Stonebrook, which was our middle and high school before it was closed. We'd spent three years together at Jackson Elementary across town, and we were just as close then as we were later, but it was almost like our group identity wasn't fully cemented until we got into Stonebrook. Fifth grade rumor was that the place had been a small college 50 years earlier, and I don't think that was true. It was certainly an old building, and the shape and layout of the rooms retained faint traces of its earlier life. The building was shaped roughly like a hash mark, with two long, wide corridors intersected perpendicularly by two other long, wide corridors. The center square of those crisscrossed lines was filled by a small gymnasium that actually had a pool underneath its motorized floor, though the floor was kept locked and the pool had supposedly long been drained dry. But the age and uniqueness of the school, its quiet sense of history and mild creepiness, it had an effect on us. We stuck together even more than usual, making a few outside friends. We worked to get into the same classes, and the few times when one of us was by ourselves, the wait until the bell rang was interminable. It was during one of these isolated classes when I first thought about the school being haunted, and even now, having talked about everything this past weekend with the others, that's still one of my clear memories of our time at Stonebrook. Some small idea, an idle daydream, a simple what-if. What if the school was haunted by a ghost? I got the news about Cassidy's death last Wednesday. It was Thomas that called me, just as he had called the others. After I had moved away at 15, after Stonebrook was closed, the group had drifted apart. Thomas and Cassidy had stayed the closest, and sophomore year of college they had gotten married. In the ten years since, they had generally seemed happy the few times we talked or got together, but I knew they had ups and downs. Thomas told me on the phone that they had been legally separated for the past three months, but were 
trying to work things out for themselves and their little girl. And then Cassidy had gone missing one morning and was found five hours later in the groundskeeper's shed of the park across the street from their apartment. The police were investigating it as a potential homicide due to the strangeness of the death, but there were no leads. Thomas had been on duty at the hospital where he worked as a physician's assistant, so his alibi was solid. Worse was that she seemed to have drowned, despite being in a dry room with no clues as to how she got there. I couldn't get into Chicago until the morning of the funeral, but afterward we all went back to Thomas's house. They'd been living together during the separation, and as the four of us sat around his living room, I found myself looking out the window at the park across the street, wondering where the shed was and where my friend had been found. We'd been talking about Cassidy for the last three hours, telling funny stories and listening to Thomas go on emotional monologues about how much he loved her and how he failed her, which was always followed by us reassuring him that she loved him too and that none of this was his fault. He would always glance at me at this point, and I would try to give him a comforting smile while hoping it was enough, because I didn't know what else to say. But as the evening wore on, you could feel the conversational momentum grinding to a halt. It was just past eight, but our tiredness and sadness were palpable. Still, I looked at Thomas, and I knew that his daughter was staying at his parents' house overnight, and I hated the thought of him being alone. So at the next lull, I suggested some or all of us spending the night with him. He looked like he was going to argue, but then he nodded with a wary look on his eyes. Yeah, I think I'd like that. For any of you that want to, though, I know some of you have rooms already paid for. Millicent grinned. My hotel looked like shit anyway. Alice murmured in agreement, and I felt a slight buoyancy that I had found a small way to help. That's when I ruined everything. The Stonebrook Six are back together again. As soon as I said the words, I regretted them. I would meant it as a joke, overly dramatic and silly proclamation to get a cheap laugh out of the others, but as soon as I said it, I realized that Cassidy was barely in the ground, and I was talking about us all being together. Thomas glared at me while Mills started shaking her head, her eyes wide. Why would you say that? Alice's tone was more hurt than accusatory. Why the fuck would you say that, Alex? I feel like I could hardly breathe, my eyes roving between the three of them. Fuck, I, I'm so sorry. That was, that was so stupid. I'm just not used to Cassidy being gone, and Thomas stood up, his expression hard. This isn't about Cassidy. Why would you call us the Stonebrook Six again? Is this some kind of fucking joke to you? Mills was on her feet now, putting herself between me and him. Tom, chill out. He doesn't remember. You know that. Thomas glanced down at her, his face reddening. Then how the fuck does he remember the Stonebrook Six? I was growing more confused and alarmed by the second. What? That's what we called ourselves. I remember we called ourselves that. The Stonebrook Six. It was a joke. Ellis had stood up now, too, moving closer to me. 
Okay, Alex, that's right. Sorta. But do you remember why it was a joke? I could feel tears stinging my eyes now. I didn't understand why everyone was so mad at me, especially if they weren't mad about me saying it was Cassidy gone. It, it was because there were only five of us. We were talking about nicknames one day and about how our group should have one as a joke. We talked about calling ourselves the Stonebrook Five for some reason, but ended up all agreeing that Stonebrook Six sounded cooler, like an old outlaw gang. So we called ourselves the Stonebrook Six, even though there were only five of us. Thomas took a step closer. Bullshit. Such bullshit. You know I've never fully believed your convenient, I don't remember shit, but how the fuck are you pulling out shit like that and not remembering what it really was? Mills gave him a shove that didn't move him but got his attention. Fucking back off of him. He's not lying. He lost more than we did, so try to remember that. Mills' glare melted away as she turned back to look at me. Alex, it's not exactly like you think. A lot happened, and... Well, you blocked out most of the bad, I think. We don't understand how or why you don't remember, but you need to know that we believe you and we love you. Thomas snorted. <laughs> Typical. Alex makes Cassidy's funeral day about him. Ella shot him a dark look. But... We all loved Cassidy. You don't have the market cornered on missing her. Looking back down, he gave me a sad smile. Alex, what you were saying about how we started calling ourselves the Stonebrook Six? That never happened. We started calling ourselves the Stonebrook Six because of the professor. I felt a rush of fear running through my body at the name. My mouth went dry and I shot up like the room was on fire. No. What? No. Mills looked at Alice. You shouldn't have said anything. You should have left it alone. Alice shrugged. I didn't bring it up, but he has a right to know. Alex, do you remember the professor? I shook my head violently and started trying to move past them out of the room. No, I, I, I don't want to talk about this. Thomas caught me in a strong grip and pulled me into a bear hug. I was equal parts angry and loving. We're going to talk about it, bro. I think it's time. Mills was yelling at him, but he went on. The professor was the sixth in the Stonebrook Six. It was that I shoved him hard enough that he lost his grip and went staggering back into a low coffee table, his arms pinwheeling as he tried to regain his balance before sitting down hard enough on the small table and one of the legs gave way and sent him sprawling onto the floor. For my part, I imagined I looked like a trapped animal. But that was okay, because it's exactly what it felt like. Mills had her hands raised as she stepped forward and touched my cheeks. Sweetie, it's okay. We should probably go ahead and talk about it a bit now, just so you're not confused anymore, is that okay? I still wanted to run, but her cool, smooth hands on my face were like a smoothing balm. I nodded reluctantly, looking down at Thomas. You okay, man? He stood up slowly and gave me a slight smile. <sighs> yeah, I'm sorry. No, I was just being an asshole. Are we cool? I nodded. Sure, man. 
I'll replace that table. I'm just really freaked out at the moment. Mill stepped back and nodded. I know. So let's try talking it out, and if you reach a point where you get too scared, we'll stop. Okay? Okay. I paused, and then pushed my eyes going between Millicent and Ellis. So, who was the professor? Ellis was the one who answered. It was the ghost. The one that we made up. The one that hurt all those people. What follows is my best recollection of what Ellis told me that night. I want to be clear that before I start, I truly didn't remember anything more or different than what I would have told them or what I've written previously. And it wasn't like I just had a giant blank spot from age 10 to 15 or 20. I have memories, plenty of memories, of both my time at Stonebrook and what came after. It's just now I believe that I'm missing a great many things and that at least a few of those things I do remember never actually happened. That's the best and only explanation I have for my relative ignorance of our collective past. It scares me, at least in part because I now know that I've had one or more conversations with the rest of the six with my friends about me not remembering things at all or correctly. This was before they realized how deep-seated my block was and gave up trying out of some combination of frustration and fear that forcing me to remember would do me harm. So not only don't I remember the events themselves, I don't remember them trying to remind me of them. It makes me feel that my memory lapses go beyond shock or trauma, more like someone or something intentionally fucked with my head. Even now, going over what I'm about to relay in this writing, I don't really remember it, at least not well. It's like I saw a movie of a portion of my life, and now I have trouble distinguishing what I actually remember from my life and what I'm just remembering from the movie. When I finish writing this, I'm going to call Mills and see if she's okay. Again, below is my best recollection of one of the last times I got to talk to one of my best friends. Alex, I know you say you don't know what we're talking about, and I... We believe you. We do. But stuff like you mentioning the Stonebrook Six, your reaction when I mentioned the professor, I think you still have those memories in there somewhere and have just blocked them somehow. Or maybe they're being kept from you. Either way, I think it would be good for you, for all of us, if we explained a bit and see if it'll stick with you this time. See if you're ready. Now, as you know, we all transferred from Jackson Elementary to Stonebrook Middle at the start of the fifth grade. The building was weird and kind of spooky, and we all mainly hung out with each other. Between classes, we started up, between classes, we started out meeting up at the big oak tree that stood at the edge of the bus drop-off parking lot. But by seventh grade, we were changing classes as much as the high school, and started running into older kids that were pissed that we were crowding their secret smoking spot behind the tree. We looked for another good hangout spot for a couple of weeks, but then Thomas and Cassidy found us a way into the lower rooms. You look a bit lost, so let me explain. The hallways of the school crisscrossed, with the vertical four halls being used for 5th through 8th grade, as well as special classrooms for things like music and clubs. The horizontal halls were used for ninth through 12th grade and had been administrative offices and the teacher's lounge. 
but as we figured out over time, each of those halls had another floor below that wasn't connected to each other like the floors above. It gave each floor its own private basement, and while the rooms had been used for classes at some point in the building's past, by the time we got there, they were mainly for storage, or a secret hangout if you could find a door unlocked. The door to the basement of the 6th grade's hall didn't lock securely, and by the time October of our 7th grade year had rolled around, we were already hanging out down there regularly. It wasn't as bad as it sounds. There was electricity, and the space was surprisingly clean, though there was a certain air of decay and disuse that always hung out in the stale air. It was a spooky place, and the few times I was the first one to arrive, I had to fight the urge to go back upstairs until one of you got there. I think maybe that's what got us talking about ghosts. No, I interjected. I remember daydreaming in class about there being a ghost at the school. I was by myself and bored. I think I brought it up to the rest of you. Ellis frowned, glancing at Mills and Thomas. Well, that could be true. Either way, it doesn't matter who brought it up first. We were all talking about it, and we were all part of what came next. At first, it was just us swapping rumors and speculation. We had heard about the school as a way to pass time during breaks or lunch. Truth be told, most of it was fairly tame. It seemed the place had been a college at one point, but nothing bad had ever happened there that we could tell. No grisly murders or dark rituals, no crazy people or monsters. Of course, mundane fact didn't satisfy us for long. We would talk about the school being creepy, about maybe having seen something or heard something one time. We would talk about the school being creepy, about maybe having seen something or heard something one time. There would be passionate debates about how a place that old and creepy must be haunted by at least one ghost, despite the lack of any evidence to support it. Then we turned to talking about what such ghosts would look like. Cassidy's the one that came up with the idea that it was probably a dead soul of a former college professor. The professor, she suggested, had probably fallen in love with one of his students, and when his advances were rejected, he'd killed himself at the school, possibly in the very room we sat huddled in beneath fourth and fifth period. It was just a story, of course, and we all knew it, but stories have power. So does belief. I've been thinking a lot about that the last few days, and I think stories are living things. Whether you're telling the tale or hearing it, you feed it with emotion and thought, with imagination and belief, and it evolves and grows. In time, a story can take on a life of its own. Over the next few weeks, we added a great deal to the professor. It became kind of an informal story contest, where we would all take turns creating stories that either plumbed some chamber of ghosts or school's past, or reported on some more recent indication of the professor's continued presence at the school. Thomas was first. Thomas told us more details about how the professor was seen lurking around the halls of the college in the months following his death. The girl he had been in love with dropped out after his suicide, but returned the following quarter. She was one of the few women at the school at the time, and this, combined with her prior absence, caused her to redouble her efforts to catch up and surpass her peers. One night, she went to leave the school library. She found that she was locked in and all alone. Well, except for the professor. 
The next morning, they found her bruised and bloodied in a gibbering heap. She never returned to school, and people say she just died a few weeks later from some unknown malady. Mills added in how the building was actually built on the tribal grounds of Arakara, a Native American tribe that once lived in the area. Or, to be more accurate, she had added with dramatic flair a banished offshoot of the Arakara that had been shunned by the tribe for their extreme cruelty and dark magic practices. They'd used the location as a site for their black rituals, and when they were driven from the land, European immigrants found themselves drawn to the place as well. A village had grown up in the spot in the early 1800s, being a prosperous trade hub for local farmers and distant merchants for nearly 50 years. Then, during the height of the Civil War, a small band of travelers had come to town to find every man, woman, and child slaughtered. The initial reactions were to blame a rogue detachment of Confederate or Union soldiers, but closer examination showed that the townsfolks appeared to have all turned on one another until the last one died of wounds she'd inflicted on herself. It was another 30 years before anyone dared to build in the area again, but people have a short memory where there's money to be made. And by 1900, the current town had started growing in that direction, and soon the school was being built. Some say the same dark forces that plagued earlier generations caused the professor to commit suicide and may still stalk these halls today. Alice's tale was next. When they bought the closed-down college and started renovating it into the middle and high school, they found all these weird lower-floor hallways. Apparently, they had been used for classes at one time, all except for the one we were meeting in. That one had been a lab the college had set aside for faculty to use, though only a couple ever did. One of those was named Arthur Chester, a chemist that was known for his obsessive devotion to his research and isolated lifestyle. When the school closed, everything was very chaotic, but they did try to make sure that everyone was out before they sealed everything up. They went into every underground chamber, calling out for people and checking for signs that someone was being left behind. But Arthur had taken to testing his compounds on himself and laid passed out in a dim corner of a back room. He never stirred, and they sealed him in with no idea at all. When he awoke, it was another two days before he knew he could leave, and the theory was that he suffocated himself with the gases from the concoction intended to blow the door off its hinges. All that's known for certain is that his face and hands were torn and broken from where he had frantically flung himself against the heavy metal door until his lungs or heart finally gave out. Next was Cassidy's story. A few years back, before we were at Stonebrook, one of the freshmen saw moving in the woods near the school. They thought it was a deer at first, and they pointed it out to a friend, but the friend didn't see anything. Intrigued and wanting to prove their friend wrong, they tried to get their companion to go with them to the wood's edge, but they refused. Determined now, they set off by themselves while their friend went off to class, yelling a stern admission that the teacher was going to skin them alive for missing class. When the freshman didn't come home that night, everyone began to search for her. It wasn't long before they zeroed in on her friend and what she might have seen. This led them to the woods, and while they had brought ten people and a pair of dogs to search for her, it was unnecessary. 
She was hanging 30 feet up in the branches of a large tree not far in along the main trail of the woods. Her skin had been flayed away and spread like ragged wings behind her, and her lipless mouth was held open by what they first took to be one of her own notebooks. However, on closer inspection, they saw it was actually an old essay book. Written on the inside cover was the name of the girl the professor had loved. These stories were told and retold over the course of several weeks, and every time that it would come to your turn, Alex, you would just pass, saying you were still working on yours. We didn't push you, but we were just starting to get tired of rehashing the same old material, and for whatever reason, we didn't feel like we could move on to the new stories or something else entirely until you were finished. So we started telling the stories to others. I think we were all doing it on our own at first. I remember the first time I talked about it to any of you, about how I had told a couple of buddies in gym class about the professor. I was surprised to find you had all been doing the same thing. Stuff like that isn't uncommon, of course. Every school or town or group of more than five people have rumors and superstitions. Most of the time they have their time in the limelight, and then they fade away. Some stick around long enough to become urban legends or folk tales, but when we started telling people about the professor, it spread quickly and more powerfully than any of us had expected. Part of it was we were all telling it like it was true. We'd taken to telling each other stories among ourselves, you included, so we were all practiced in telling details of the tales without stumbling or lacking confidence. Another thing was that even though we were all known to be friends, we were telling different people, who then spread it to others. Within a month, our versions of Professor's stories have been told probably 50 times. It's not even counting the mutated versions, the spin-offs, the rip-offs, the straight-up new stories other people were creating out of some kind of strange drive, whether it was just an urge to be part of the current trend or something darker pushing them to do it. By Christmas, people were telling each other to watch out for the professor and don't go into the woods alone during the holiday. We thought it was hilarious and were more than a little proud that we had inadvertently created a school spirit, at least for a little while. We had kind of figured out it would die down back when we came back in January, but that was before Jenna Hastings went missing. Jenna Hastings was a sophomore at Stonebrook, and she went missing the day before Christmas Eve. The last time anyone had seen her, she was leaving the mall, bags of last-minute Christmas gifts in her hands, and walking across the parking lot toward the fast-food place on the corner. We were already out for the holiday break at the time, so it wasn't until a few days later after Christmas that it became a big enough deal that the news trickled down to us. I remember all of us sitting in my attic playing sorry, because we were tired of being outside in the cold. Cassidy had just gotten there and was telling us about Jenna, and at first it was mildly troubling and interesting, but that was all. Jenna was three years older than us, which at twelve might as well have been thirty years, and while we had some vague idea of who she was, we didn't have a clear idea of her as a person. Instead, she was more of a point of interest or a cautionary tale. But then Thomas decided to make a joke out of it. 
Cassidy had finished her short recording of what she had overheard from her mother's phone conversation, and we were about to get back to the game when Thomas piped up with, maybe the professor got her. We all froze and looked at him. His proud grin started to fall away, and Mills punched him in the arm, finishing the job. Idiot, she said with a scowl. That's not funny, and it's dumb. The professor is made up. We were all nodding in agreement, and even at the time, I knew that something felt wrong. We were all either 12 or 13, and none of us were known for being overly sensitive or afraid of dark humor, but we all shared a kind of desperate intensity in that moment, a need to not only rebuke what Thomas had said, but deny it. I've thought about us sitting in that attic, scolding him while he grew sad and sullen. He didn't like being yelled at, but he didn't fight back like he usually would. It was as if he knew as much as the rest of us that he'd made a mistake beyond bad taste. I think that's one of the first times I knew we had somehow started to believe in the professor, too. The following week, we were back in school, and we had carefully avoided any further mention of the professor among ourselves during the break, maybe in some unconscious attempt to kill the idea before it took deeper root but our hopes that the rest of the school would have forgotten about our stories over the holidays were dashed as soon as we got off the bus that first morning back. Two of the school janitors had just set up a pressure washer to blast paint off the concrete walkway just a few feet from the bus lot. They'd already started spraying, but we could see the neon green words emblazoned across the ground like a brand. The professor took her. Who's next? We found out later that the vandalism had just been discovered half an hour before the buses started arriving and that they'd removed it by that afternoon, but the damage had already been done. The school was on fire with fear and speculation now, and the larger world had started to take notice too. During a class change, we saw two policemen out at the walkway, taking photographs of the now partially obliterated message. Then, after lunch, we realized that they were still there, questioning several staff about it as well. The reason was obvious to everyone. They thought it could be connected to Jenna's disappearance, or at the very least, they wanted to cover every base just to be safe. Either way, this investigation just further validated the professor's existence to most of the students. Within the week, we were all hearing news stories about the school and the professor pop up, sometimes told to us by the same people we had initially told the old stories. For the first few days back, we tried to laugh it off or ignore it, and we didn't talk too much about it amongst ourselves, but there was a tightening cord of tension running through all of us. It was quickly becoming something we didn't just not discuss, but something we actively avoided discussing. Then a couple of things happened that changed everything. The first was the third week of January, Jenna Hastings was found. She'd run off with a boy from a town over that she'd been secretly dating for over a year. He was an older boy who'd made up promises of taking her away from the druggerty of high school and bossy parents, and who wound up leaving her at a burger joint two states away, not dissimilar from the local one he'd picked her up from the day before Christmas Eve. The town breathed a collective sigh of relief, and no one was more happy that she'd been found than us. We began joking about how stupid people were to believe in the professor, how silly it all was. We would sit in our underground hideaway, sounding superior and proud of how everyone had come to believe in something we had made up. But the jokes and laughter weren't quite the same as they'd been before. 
Now they felt like we were whistling as we walked through a graveyard, our forced humor and bravado meant to keep dark things at bay. In the next couple of months, talk of the professor did die down from its fever pitch after the graffiti, but it never really went away. And by the last week of school that year, we just come to accept that for good or ill, we had created a new legend for the school and the town. I say for the town because there was actually a newspaper article about the professor about two weeks after Jenna Hastings was found. It was a puff piece in the local paper, and it was trying to trade on the drama of the missing girl who had been found while not explicitly saying her name. But it was undeniably about the quote-unquote teacher ghost that locals had started talking about in recent months and gave poor summaries of a couple of the stories. A few of our parents asked us if we'd heard anything about the ghost crap at school, and we all denied it earnestly. We were ready to put it behind us. Then Ellie Marks, or as she was frequently called by her cruel fellow freshman, Ellie Skidmarks, made the mistake of picking on Cassidy at school. Ellie was a heavy-set, unfortunately proportioned girl, and all that combined with dim intellect and a terrible temper led her to frequently shift between pitiable victim and merciless bully, depending on her surroundings. Likely from the outside, it was like watching some kind of social casualty experiment play out. She'd get picked on, she'd become hurt and angry, and she would take it out on younger, smaller students. Our group rarely had much problem with bullying, in part because we stuck together and kept to ourselves, and in part because Thomas and Mills would happily beat ass if someone tried to test things. Ellie had tried to test things a couple of times in the past when Cassidy was alone. Cassidy, who was small and beautiful and delicate, who had boys already noticing her despite her best efforts to fade into the background. I think we all knew that Ellie had been dealt a harsher hand in life than Cassidy had, and that's part of why she'd never gotten worse than a strong warning from Mills when she had tried saying mean things to Cassidy in the past. But that last week of school, the P.E. classes were all devoted to some combination of field relays and dodgeball, and Ellie just couldn't resist. Myself, Mills, and Cassidy were all in the same dodgeball game that day, and we were on the second round. Dodgeball always runs the risk of turning into a brutal free-for-all, but the teacher, Miss Perkins, did a good job of keeping her P.E. classes in line. No one had gotten hurt, and everyone was having a pretty good time so far. When Ellie got the ball in the second round, she headed straight for Cassidy. Based on the rules, she wasn't supposed to go over the team's half of the basketball court to make her throw. In the first throw, she didn't. The rubber ball thudded into Cassidy's lower back, startling her more than hurting her, I think, but it was enough to get her off balance and send her to the floor. It was like seeing a falling gazelle for Ellie. She scooped up another ball as she charged towards Cassidy, waiting until she was standing over her before throwing it hard at her upturned face. Cassidy let out a yell and Miss Perkins began running over, blowing her whistle and hollering for Ellie to get back. The older girl started mumbling some half-hearted excuse that it was an accident, but the smirk on her face said that she knew she was caught and she didn't care. Me and Mills rushed over to Cassidy, who was sitting up, but had a large red welt starting to rise on the left side of her face, and her eye kept pouring water. When she saw the two of us, she started crying. I bent down and hugged her. Behind me, I could hear Mills talking to Ellie. 
You just fucked up, Skidmark. We're going to get you for this. Normally, Miss Perkins would have jumped Mills for language and a threat like that, but I think she half wanted to hit Ellie herself. So she told Ellie to go to the principal's office immediately and that she would be coming along in just a minute. She then turned back to Cassidy, who had helped her to her feet. Perkins was asking if she was okay, if she needed to go to the nurse, when we started to hear Ellie scream. It took a moment for anyone to find Ellie because the sound of her screams seemed to echo down the 12th grade hall and into the gymnasium. Perkins and an assistant principal who left the school at the end of that year finally realized she was screaming from behind the locked metal door that led down into the lower rooms beneath the 12th grade hall. They fumbled around for the key. When they opened the door, they saw Ellie laying at the bottom of the stairs in a screeching heap. Her right leg had been broken, which could be accounted for by a bad fall down the concrete steps. But what was stranger were the bones in her hands, which had been crushed. They were damaged to such an extent that she would never use the left one well again, and the right one, the one she'd thrown the dodgeball with, ultimately had to be amputated after several failed surgeries trying to restore the blood flow. It wasn't lost on anyone that this had all happened right after she hurt Cassidy, and it didn't take long for anyone to realize that you and Thomas were in class when it happened, and the three of us were standing in front of a couple of dozen witnesses at the time. Plus, there was the fact that Ellie had somehow gotten past a locked door before she fell. But all this was secondary to the biggest thing that made everyone at the school certain of what had caused Ellie's injuries. It was Ellie herself. While she never returned to school at Stonebrook, and we never heard of anyone talking to her about it later, close to a hundred people had heard her screaming down in the dark that day. They heard what she said before her cries of pain and terror had compressed into a wavering animal hell. Oh God, oh no, fuck, it's got me. No, get it off of me. My hands, no. Professor, no. Stories and beliefs have power. So do names. When Ellie screamed out the professor's name in pain and terror, she cemented the idea of its existence in the minds of everyone that heard it. Even those that didn't want to believe. They called the stories of ghosts and dark rituals childish fairy tales had a black sliver of doubt slid into their heart that day. And for those that already believed, or wanted to, it was confirmation of something both wondrous and terrible. I remember us all talking about it one time a couple of years after Ellie was attacked, before the worst of it started happening. We were still comfortable and confident at that point, feeling special, and we talked about it all more freely in those days about what the professor might actually be and how it all worked, about how other people must look at it and why they were all at least a little afraid of us. That's when Mills had spoken up. She said that if you took a town full of people, most any town, you'd have to find someone that believed in God, some that didn't, and some that fell in between. But if one day... That town saw a miracle, 
something that seemed to clearly point to the existence of God, and beyond that, seemed to indicate that God liked some people better than the rest, it would be interpreted differently by different people. Some people would ignore or try to explain away the miracle, even if there was no reasonable alternative available. Some would embrace it and find comfort in the proof it provided. Some would just be scared, because what's more terrifying than the idea that God does exist, but he really doesn't like you very much. Now, I believe in God, and I think whatever God is, it's a lot kinder and fairer than the professor. But after Ellie's fall, we weren't worried about the professor being kind and fair. We were focused on it being on our side. I'd like to think that we were somehow manipulated by it in the weeks and months and years that followed, pushed to turn a blind eye to the true nature of the thing that we'd let into our group. But I think that was a lie. Having proof to match what our hearts had already knew was a relief in many ways, and knowing that the professor would protect us went a long way towards easing our fears about what might have played a hand in creating, or at least waking up. We felt chosen, special, and if it accorded us extra respect and defense from the other students, what was the harm? It reminds me of a story my grandmother told me growing up. There was a little boy who lived in the wilds of India with his family for most of his childhood. When he turned 12, he got to work as a servant for the prince. One day, the prince went out riding with two of his friends, and they took the boy along to act as his steward. They had been riding for several hours when they came to a clearing. In the middle of the clearing was a massive tiger sunning itself in the tall grass. The prince and his friends began excitedly boasting to each other about what they could do, how they could fight the beast, even without a weapon. They were somewhat drunk at the time, but they were also feeding off each other's foolishness and ego, so it wasn't long before one slipped from his horse to address the others. The first friend said, I will go into the grass and wrestle the tiger into submission. With that, he stripped off his shirt and ran at the tiger, leaping onto its back. The animal roared in surprise and anger, and within a matter of seconds, it had torn the man apart. The prince and his other friend were horrified, but they were more determined than ever to dominate the tiger and avenge their friend. The boy tried warning them to stop, but the prince slapped him and told him to be silent. The second friend vowed, I will go into the grass with my club and beat the tiger into submission, or kill it, if it will not submit. With that, he hunkered down and began creeping through the tall grass toward the great cat, as though to sneak upon it. When he was ten feet from the tiger, it leaped on him and ripped his throat out. The prince was now beside himself with fear and anger. He roughly shoved the boy forward, intending on sending him to death so no one would be alive to contradict the prince's grand tale of how he fought valiantly to save his friends from a giant tiger. The boy did as he was told and went out to the great beast. The tiger studied the boy carefully as he approached. His large yellow eyes narrowed as he glanced between the small figure and the prince who stood back at the tree line. For his part, the prince had already had one foot in the stirrup, ready to make a run for it as the tiger headed his way. 
He wanted to see the insolent boy killed, but not badly enough to risk himself. But the boy wasn't killed. Instead, the tiger licked his face with a giant pink tongue, and if the prince wasn't mistaken, he heard the beast begin to purr when the boy put his arms around that massively shaggy neck. The boy said something in low tones to the tiger before releasing his neck and returning to the prince. How? the prince demanded, all fear now forgotten in the face of his wounded pride and indignation. How did you face the tiger and not get killed, boy? When the boy said nothing, he pulled a musket from the stash at his waist, his jaw hard with anger. No matter. If you can face it, so can I. The prince let out a grunt as the small knife was shoved into his gut, and when he looked down, the boy twisted the knife and yanked it out. Incredulous, he went to point the gun at the boy, but the tiger was on him now, removing the gun and the arm that raised it with a single swipe. As the prince lay dying, the boy and the tiger stood over him, covered in his life's blood. The tiger absently licked the back of the boy's head as he answered the prince. I grew up near these woods, your majesty. The tiger has been one of my best friends for years. He would never harm me, nor let me come to harm, nor I him. The prince, choking on blood, gasped out a response. But why? Why not warn us before we tried to fight it? The boy laughed, bending over to wipe his small knife on the prince's brocade. Do you need the advice of a servant boy to tell you not to fight a tiger? You thought there was fun to be had, and there was. It's just that it was for my friend the tiger, not for you. And why should I spoil his fun? He's true and loyal, friend. While you, you I hardly know at all. <laughs> Damn, your grandmother told you some fucked up stories. Thomas said with a snort, getting a dirty look from Ellis. It was getting late now, and I was reaching my limit for what new and terrible things I could hear for the night. Yet I found myself asking Ellis for more. What do you think the point of the story was, Ellis? Ellis smiled, his eyes tired. Telling all of this, dredging it up, was taking a toll on him, too. I've never been sure. I used to think it meant to be careful who you fuck with because you don't know when you'll run across someone better than you. Maybe that people will do or accept just about anything for something or someone important to them, regardless of who might get hurt in the process. But now, now I think the message is that when you're best friends with a tiger, you start looking at other people as nothing more than prey. The summer after Ellie was fun and exciting time for us. We were scared, but only enough to make it more interesting. We'd come around to the idea that there was a tiger in town, but that it was our friend. We debated trying to communicate with the professor, but Mills and me were against it from the start. And with nothing new happening around us, at first we weren't even sure the professor could leave the school grounds. But by late June, we had several stories of people having strange encounters in the town. Man being chased by a shadowy figure while walking through General Park late at night. Store downtown having all of its window broken out with several employees inside with no signs of how it was done or why. These things, if they were connected to the professor, had sinister connotations. 
In truth, Mills and I argued, even though it was arguably payback for hurting Cassidy, Ellie's accident was fairly brutal and extreme. Maybe the professor was friendly to us, and maybe it wasn't, but it was certainly dangerous either way. And then the car accident happened. Or almost happened. Do you remember that part, Alex? Okay, fuck. Well, one day you and your mom and and you were going to the grocery store. You knew that big intersection up from where you lived. The gas truck missed the light that you were crossing in the intersection. It should have hit your car right where you were sitting in the passenger seat. The fucking thing was going better than 40 miles an hour and it would have killed you. I'm sorry, Mills, but it's the truth. It would have killed him if it had hit it. But it didn't. Less than five feet from the outside of your car door, the truck hit something else. We went and looked at the car next week in the junkyard. It was crushed up to the window of the cab like it had run into the side of a battleship. Hell, I don't know how it didn't explode, but it didn't. The driver died, but you were fine, and... Well, after that we knew. The professor really was our friend. We didn't talk about it with other people, but the news of the wreck spread through town. There was even a picture in the newspaper. By the time we got back to school, our social standing had changed again. Some people avoided us like the plague, while others actually started trying to befriend us, get into the circle. But of course, the circle already had its sixth and final member. <sighs> you were the one that called us that first. The Stonebrook Six. We laughed at the time, but it stuck. When it somehow got out to the rest of the school, we weren't worried or embarrassed. We wore the names as a badge of honor, a symbol of how special we were to have a tiger as a friend. But then... Ellis stopped, looking around at the others and back at me. I'm... I'm beat, man. I'm starting to... I'm going to start messing up on some of the details, and I think you've heard more than enough for now. We can talk more about it later, okay? I nodded my understanding, feeling a mixture of disappointment and relief. We all hung out quietly for a few minutes before finding spots to sleep for the night. The next day, none of us discussed it, and I haven't talked about it further with anyone yet. But that needs to change. I'm about to stop writing for now and go call Mills. See if she knows about Ellis and how he's doing. I don't want to talk more about this with her over the phone, so I'm going to see about flying out to visit her in the next couple of days, possibly after I've talked with my mother. Because I know my mom has to know some of this, or know something about something. There has to be a reason why she abandoned me with Aunt Judy at 15 and will barely even talk to me now. I trust what Ellis told me, what I might learn from the others, but I'm not taking anything for granted. And I just don't know. I feel like Ellis was hiding things from me, even if it was the best of intentions. I don't think my dear mother will be as worried about my feelings. I don't remember much from when I was 15, but I remember the ride to my Aunt Judy's house down in Tennessee. It was just me and my mother in the car, the air conditioner, the only noise for the several hour drive, though it wasn't the only reason for the chill in the air. 
I remember knowing that my mother hated me and being terribly sad about the fact, especially because I deserved it. That's the fucked up thing. I remember feeling that I had earned everything I was getting somehow, but I didn't know why. Until the last few days, I've been sleepwalking through a life built on obscured past without even questioning what would cause me not to remember something so important. But I've woken up now, at least a little. Every day, bits of memory are coming back to me, but only about those things I've been told, as though someone has to point out objects in a shadowed room for me to notice that they're there. I decided I would talk to Mills on the phone and get more details of what went on before visiting my mother. The idea was that I would be better armed with knowledge, and to be honest, I wanted to be able to learn enough to talk to myself into abandoning the idea of contradicting my mother at all. The last time I spoke to her was over the phone on my 18th birthday, and it was not a long nor heartwarming conversation. It ended with her saying she'd hoped she'd never hear from me again, and I've lived up to that hope for over a decade. But, despite repeated calls and texts, I haven't been able to get Mills yet, though I keep trying on the road to Euclid, Ohio. Hearing Mills' voicemail always makes my heart jump slightly, though increasingly it was from fear rather than excitement or joy. I didn't want to panic and I'd already booked a flight for Austin from the Cleveland airport for late tonight, but it was still hard to keep my mind on what I was doing while worrying about her. In some ways, it was a blessing, because I arrived at my mother's house before I realized it. I'd never seen it before, only knowing where she lived, thanks to my aunt, who kept hoping we'd reconcile someday, and would periodically slip me into unsolicited updates on how my mother was faring and what she was up to. It's not that I didn't care. I, I cared a lot. It's just the reminders of her were also reminders of a lot of pain and loss. I'd always been closer to my father growing up, and when he died suddenly when I was 15, it sent both me and my mother into a tailspin. I froze as I realized something. I didn't remember how my father died. I didn't remember anything other than he's dead fuck is wrong with me. The terror and anger of realizing how profound my memory gaps truly were drove me from the car and up to the front door of the house. It was a small but nice house in a pleasant neighborhood, and I tried to knock as demurely as I could for both the neighbor's sake and my mom's. Still, I knew I probably looked wild-eyed when she opened the door. Hi. Um... Hello, Mom. Sorry I didn't call or warn you, but I was afraid you wouldn't see me if you knew I was coming. I smiled weakly, my stomach churning in knots. I was afraid if I stopped talking, she would just slam the door in my face, which might still happen anyway. I just... I really need to talk to you for a few minutes. I won't stay long, and I won't ever bother you again if you want. Can I please come in and talk to you for a few minutes? I could hear my voice shaking and I hated it, but I couldn't be helped. For her part, my mother's initial look of surprise had slowly slid down into a look of suspicious anger. Are you on drugs? Is this what this is? Her voice was dry and hoarse sounding now, and I wondered if she'd started smoking again. She stopped when I was little, when... 
something happened. Fuck. I hear on TV about junkie kids coming to kill their parents. She raised a thinly penciled eyebrow. I think you've done enough killing already. I clenched my teeth, my anger and frustration burning away my guilt and fear for the moment as I took a step forward and jabbed a finger in her face. There. That right fucking there. I'm so sick of this, of all of this. People are either treating me like I'm a piece of glass or they're shitting on me for things I don't remember. No. Fuck that. I realized I'd made it five steps into the house now, my mother retreating from my angry tirade. Taking a deep breath, I started over. Look, I'm sorry, okay? I know you don't want me here. I don't want to be here, but I need answers for things that I don't remember. I'm not on drugs, and I'm not going to hurt you. I just need your help. My mother looked up at me, her lips pressed into a thin line. I don't have any money to give you. I rolled my eyes. <laughs> I don't need money. I just need help remembering things. Studying me carefully, she narrowed her gaze again. What kinds of things? I had been mostly looking down at the floor since entering, but now I met her eyes again. Like why you hate me, for one. I really don't remember why or what happened when I was fifteen. I saw her eyes begin watering, and at first I thought it was sadness at how far apart we drifted or regret for sending me away. And then I realized it was raw hurts and anger. Get out. I won't hear any more of this bullshit in my own shitting house. She was screaming like a madwoman now, her eyes wide and her face red as she advanced on me. This was always your problem. You'd never admit what you'd done. Never admit to killing them or letting them get killed, whichever it was. I stood my ground. They? Who is they? Who did I kill or let get killed? She'd reached me now, beating upon my chest with her small, thin hands. Damn you, Alex. What is wrong with you? Are you telling me you don't remember? Are you still going to play this game after all this time? I gently grabbed her wrist and held them still for a minute. Mom, Cassidy and Ellis are dead. They've been murdered because of something we all were doing as kids. And if I don't figure out what is going on, it may happen to the rest of us too. I sighed. Fuck, I, it, it might even, if I do figure it out. I let go of her wrists and step back. I'm not playing games. I really don't remember. I never could. I can't explain it, but it's only since I've been talking to others the last few days that I've started to remember any of it. So I'm going to ask you one more time. Explain to me what went on, and then I'll go away forever. My mother wiped her eyes, and I could see her fingers were yellowed with age and cigarette tar. I realized I'd smelled alcohol in her breath when she was close by as well. She was looking at me like a wounded animal, and I hated myself for making it all worse for her by being there. And if she wasn't going to... I don't know everything. I don't know much, really, but... I'll tell you what I can. 
then you have to go. You were always so close with your friends. When you were younger, I was happy for you. I know how hard childhood can be, and to have so many close friends can be a blessing. But as you got older and moved to that damn school, things started changing. You were more quiet, and you barely talked to us about what was going on with you anymore. At first, I chalked it up to adolescence. You were a growing boy, and I knew from my brothers growing up that a teenage boy can be hard to be around. You weren't mean or getting into trouble. You were just not there. You were gone a lot of the time, and when you were home, you could tell your mind was off somewhere else. When strange things started happening around the school and town, we didn't pay it much mind. Your father liked to joke about the teacher ghost, and we really thought that's all it was, a silly joke or a myth, but then... <sighs> we almost had a car accident that one time, and... Well, you may not remember it, but it was almost really bad. And the way it didn't happen was so strange. I should have known then something wasn't right. Maybe I could have helped you, got away from those kids, that school... Still, people are blind to things so much, right? So, time passed, and I heard of things happening, but I guess I ignored it or thought it was just talk. And then one night, you came in and said that Alicia was gone, that she had been taken by the thing at school. I didn't know what you were talking about, but you were all torn up and terrified, so I... Wait... Who's Alicia? I felt as though my head was being torn apart, and as I spoke, each word echoed across my brain like a monstrous bell being rung. I saw my mother wanting to grow angry again, but she wrestled it back down when she saw how much pain I was in. My God, you really don't know. I think you really forgot her. We'd been sitting, standing at the edge of her living room while we talked, and she moved now to her mantle to retrieve a picture frame. And it was a photo of me at about age 12, along with my parents and a young girl that looked to be about 8. My mother held the picture in front of my face, tapping the little girl with a long yellow nail. That's Alicia. That's your sister. She dropped her arm and staggered back, her face looking impossibly old and tired. That's half of why I can't be around you anymore. I could never believe that you really forgot her. How do you forget a person, especially her? She was so sweet and good, and she loved you so much. She was crying freely now, and I wanted to comfort her, but didn't quite dare. We all loved each other so much but then you got caught up in whatever was going on at the school her face was harder now tears sliding down her cheeks like water on granite I don't know what you got tangled up in whether it was some kind of cult or if there really was some ghost or something at that school all I know is that when you came in all scared and bloody, your father went to bring our baby girl back. I tried to get you to stay with me, but you ran out after he left. 
called the police, but they were already out there. Seven people died that night. They never found my baby girl, but they found... They found your father's body in the gymnasium. Or parts of it, at least. Her eyes were dry and blazing again. And you... I was so scared for you. Even when I knew you must have had some hand in her being at that school so late in the evening, especially when you were the one that knew where she was. When we found you and your friends out on that football field later that night, all unconscious, I was so relieved. Because you were safe, and because maybe you had answers. Maybe you could help us find your father and Alicia. Her tone grew more wooden as she talked, and her eyes had wandered to the picture in her hands. She stroked it absently as she went on. But then... They found your father around the time the ENTs were checking your kids out, and they said... You were scraped up, but otherwise fine. Rescue crews were still searching the school, but I took you to the car and asked you what happened where you had seen Alicia last. Her grip tightened on the frame until I heard it crack. <laughs> and you know what you said to me? Who's Alicia? I finished with her remembering it as I was being told. I still didn't know what had led up to that moment, but I remember my mother that night so sad and scared, staring at me with her mouth open for several moments, asking me again and again, shaking my shoulders. And then she slapped me across the face. I could see she was remembering that too. I know it seems like I've treated you bad, Alex, and I guess I have. But just like you couldn't help what you remembered, I couldn't help how that made me feel. I tried getting investigators, psychologists, even a preacher to talk to you, tried to help you remember or quit lying if you weren't being honest about what you knew, but nothing helped. And every day, every day I felt like you were slowly killing your sister by either being intentionally evil or just stupid and weak enough to block out the most important thing you could ever know. She wiped her nose as she shook her head. I'm sorry, but I'm done. I've spent years trying to forget all of this, to forget about you. I'm sorry you're in trouble now, especially if it's not your fault. But I cannot be around you anymore. I don't hate you, Alex, but I don't love you either. Not anymore. I left my mother's house and drove to a nearby parking lot where I just cried for a few minutes. I think part of me had always thought we would reconcile, and the loss of that hope coupled with the memories of my baby sister flooding back as I tried to cope with losing her too, it was, it was more than I could handle at first. I didn't know how much I was to blame for what had happened to her and my father, but that didn't lessen my grief or guilt. After a while, I checked my phone. No word from Mills, and two hours until my flight. 
I decided to try her again. This time she picked up right away. Except it wasn't her. It was Thomas. Hey, Alex. Mills can't come to the phone right now. Mainly because I have her tied up in the other room. Been trying to get the professor to sit on her chest, which, fuck me, you probably don't even know what I'm talking about. But it doesn't matter. We need you, buddy. I think it'll work if you're here. I was momentarily confused, trying to decide if he could potentially be joking or something, but that'd be no sense. He wouldn't go all the way to Austin for a joke, and his voice sounded strange, like he was caught between laughing and crying, or just in the middle of going insane. Look, you're right, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll come and we'll figure this out. Is she okay? Have you heard her? Thomas gave an uneven laugh. No, she almost broke my arm, but she's fine. I'm not trying to hurt either of you, but I need you both to contact the professor. Ask for its help. Help? With Cassidy. With bringing her back to life. Thomas, you need to stop this. I know you're upset, out of your head, with grief even, but this isn't the answer. I had spent a hellish five hours since my brief surprise call with Thomas, waiting at the airport, waiting on the plane, waiting for a rental car, and then driving as fast as I could to get to Mills' house outside of Austin. I didn't think he would hurt her, but I hadn't thought he would tie her up either. When I knocked on the door, he answered right away, and though I could tell he'd been crying, he looked oddly happy to see my face. He actually went to give me a hug before seeming to absently remember he had a small revolver in his right hand. With an embarrassed shrug, he gestured with the gun for me to come in. When I first entered the house, I moved past Thomas and started calling for Mills. She yelled back, and I found her laying on the bed in her room, with her ankles and wrists tied with thin yellow rope. I had untied her right away, knowing he was at my back with a gun but not caring. Once I knew she was okay, I hugged her and turned to look at Thomas, who asked us to come sit on the sofa in the living room. It was there that I started trying to talk him back from the edge he was teetering on. But looking at my friend, his eyes weighted down with a hard glaze of insanity. My heart sank as I realized I wasn't going to be able to reason with him. No, no, Alex, you're wrong. I've thought it all out. We've created this thing, right? And it's powerful. Able to do all kinds of things. It's magic. So what's to stop it from helping us out with Cassidy? How about the fact that it just fucking killed her last week? Mills snarled at him, the anger and fear in her voice scaring me more than Thomas. I needed to get her out of here. At least she'd be safe, and maybe I could calm him down alone, but... Thomas didn't seem angry. He was nodding and smiling as though being patient with children who just didn't understand. I see your point, and why'd you think that? But the last few nights, I've been having dreams, or... Really, the same dream repeatedly. At first I thought it was just stress and grief, but when it happened the third time, well, I realized it had to be the professor. He was sending me a message, telling me about what I could do. 
Mills gave him a warning look. Thomas, stop it. Looking at me, her eyes worried, she said. Do you remember a girl named Alicia? I've been holding her hand and I gave it a squeeze now. Yeah, I, I do now. I came from my mother's. It's, it, it, it didn't go well, but she told me about my little sister. I've spent the last few hours remembering more and more about her since. I felt myself getting choked up again and pushed it down, turning back to Thomas. I loved Mills for being worried for me, but I was tired of being protected. So what did you see in that dream that makes you think the professor will help? What doesn't Mills want you to tell me? Thomas smiled wide, his eyes glittering in their sunken hollows. He looked ten years older than even after Cassidy's funeral, and I wondered for a moment when he'd last gotten any restful sleep. His voice and his movements had a disquieting jerkiness to them, like a corpse dancing in an electric current. I stifled a shiver at the thought as I tried to listen. And then I was floating in the old gym at Stonebrook, following past the floor and down to that old pool. You don't remember when we were down in that pool, do you? Alex? Well, that's all right. But I was down there, and I could feel the old professor down there with me, too. But I wasn't scared. I was was happy. It was like seeing an old friend, except I couldn't really see him too well, of course. And he kept looking like different things. But then I heard something moving around in the shadows of the pool, sloshing around in that smelly water down there in the dark. It was funny. I could see down there, but I couldn't see either. Not everything. It wasn't until I started floating out to the middle of the pool that I saw clearly what it was. It was Alicia, all grown up, or at least a lot bigger than when we lost her. And she was alive. I don't know how she was alive, but down there in the dark I saw her look at me and, well, she kind of smiled, I think. Just think, Alex. If it can keep her alive all this time, it can bring back Cassidy. I feel like that's what it was telling me. He stopped talking suddenly, staring at me as though he expected his words to have answered any questions and solved any conflicts. That's fucking crazy, Tom. That's impossible. I stood up and he raised his gun half-heartedly, but I ignored it. If it was the professor contacting you... And not just a dream. It wasn't trying to help you. It was trying to trick you. It killed Ellis. Did you know that? It fucking crushed him against the ceiling of a parking garage like a goddamn roach. That's your buddy the professor. That's the thing you're siding with over your fucking best friends. I was standing over him now. His lips were quivering as tears began to fill his eyes. I heard Mills start softly crying behind me at the news of Alice, but I kept my gaze on Thomas for the moment as he struggled to speak. I... No. I... We just... We just need to try, okay? Get the professor to sit on our chest. Any of us. Talk to it. Even if I'm wrong or crazy, we need to try and talk to it. Right? Find out why it's killing us. I reached down and snatched the gun away from him without resistance. I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. Sit on our chest? What the fuck does that even mean? 
I cast my gaze back to Mills, who had a haunted look on her tear-streaked face. Do you know? She nodded slowly. I do, yeah. But I, I think it's a bad idea. If it would even work now. Thomas looked past me at her. It would. It would with him here. Alex was always its favorite. I went to rub my face and realized I was still holding the gun. Frowning disgustedly, I emptied it onto the floor and then set the gun down on the coffee table before stepping back to face the both of them. Look, I want to know what the rest of what's going on. Mills, I think you should leave, or me and Thomas can. He can catch me up on his own. She was already shaking her head. No, I'm not leaving you. No offense, Thomas, but I don't trust you for shit at the moment, and you're too upset to tell him anything anyway. Thomas was crying softly now, his head buried in one of his hands. I know. You're right. I'm fucked up, but please tell him. Maybe he'll understand if we tell him the rest. He looked up briefly, his eyes red. I really am sorry. I'd never hurt you guys. I'm just so fucking scared and alone. I squatted down next to his chair and gave him a brief hug. We're all scared, man. But you're not alone. Let her tell me the rest and we'll figure something out, okay? He nodded and I stood up again, moving to sit with Mills again. She was still almost... Painfully beautiful, even scared and exhausted and terribly sad, her face shone with this inner light that touched the core of me. Watching her trying to find the right words, working to find the least painful path through making me relive the worst thing that's ever happened to us. I knew then that I was still in love with her, would always be in love with her, and only her. It was a strange time to have such a happy revelation, but I held on to the warmth of it as... I waited for her to begin. By the end of the 8th grade, the Stonebrook 6 pretty much ran the middle school. We didn't bull anyone, but the strange combination of fear and mystery surrounding us was a powerful brew. We were popular without trying, at least on the surface level. That's all that really mattered, because as always, we really only wanted to hang out with each other anyway. When we got to ninth grade, things were different. Despite sharing the same main building and campus, there was a fairly sharp social divide between the two schools of Stonebrook, and we were now going from being the eldest middle schoolers to lowly freshmen. It meant older kids, different teachers, and more time having passed since the last tangible signs of the professor. People like to forget things that don't suit them. They use time and the elasticity of memory to sand off the rough edges of the past, and those things are too hard to be reshaped and stored away in a musty corner of their mind. The professor, as compelling as it was in some ways, was an uncomfortable thought. And like any uncomfortable thought, it spent quite some time walking on the knife's edge of the townsfolk collective and individual consciousness. On the one side, the eventual oblivion of rationalization and explanation. On the other side, the same neglect and dusty demise that befell childhood memories and unpleasant pasts. During most of our ninth grade year, I think the professor was teetering between those two kinds of death, and it's a balance on the blade 
grew weaker with each passing day. If we'd only left it alone, it might have faded away for good that year. But we didn't. We didn't want the professor to die, and I think we could all sense it needed our help to survive. Without any plan or coordination, we began talking about the professor again in our subterranean hideaway. I mean, we always had talks about it a little, even if it was just a joke or a passing reference, but by the spring of our freshman year, we were back to discussing it regularly, the breath of our words fanning the embers back to life. I was largely to blame. I'd taken upon myself to do research on different myths and legends, specifically magical creatures that seemed similar to our professor if I could find any. That's how I wound up reading about tulpas and telling you all about them. Tulpas, from what I remember, are supposed to be beings created by the mental or spiritual energies of one or more people, kind of like an imaginary friend that you make real by believing hard enough. It was about a strange idea, but it seemed to fit the professor better than anything else on what we knew about it. Around the same time, Ellis came up with the idea of trying to see the professor. We weren't even sure it was still around, and the idea of verifying its continued presence in some way was attractive to all of us. Ellis's idea led to us getting a large baby pool and sneaking it into the back room down into our secret lair. We filled it with a few inches of water and began calling to the professor. The idea was this. The professor was always invisible, and past attempts we had made to just ask it to show itself had gone unanswered, so either it couldn't become visible to us, or didn't want to. But if it was at least willing to come and visit us, if it had some kind of physical form, we might be able to get some sense of its size or shape in the water. It was an odd idea, and Ellis admitted that it was a long shot, but we figured it was worth trying, with the fun and challenge of sneaking at the pool into the school almost worth the price of admission by itself. Funny thing was, that it kind of worked. We set up the pool and asked the professor to come forward as we stood around the water holding hands. And this time it came. We could all feel it there. And after a few seconds, Cassidy let out an excited gasp as the water began to slosh in the pool. As the liquid settled, you could see voids where the water didn't go. It was hard to say for sure, but it looked as though the professor was standing on two invisible legs in the pool. Except that it became four voids, instead of two. And then one larger one, and then eight small ones. On and on we watched as the water would slosh and settle, slosh and settle, every time around a different shape or configuration. And then it was gone. We all began talking excitedly, and at first we didn't really understand what we had just seen. And then I realized what it was. It was changing shape repeatedly as it stood in the water. Big, small, many legs, or none, it must have shifted between a dozen things in the span of a couple of minutes. We were excited about all this, of course, but rather than satisfying our curiosity to know more about the professor, it just made us hungrier for the next step. Alex, you were the one that came up with the way of communicating with it. One day, we were all skipping a school assembly together. 
you started telling us about a theory you had. You said that if we had really made the professor up, made it what it was, why couldn't we make up a way of talking to it, too? The idea caught on with all of us right away. We talked about it for a couple of weeks, figuring out and agreeing on the details. By the end of the school year, we were ready to try it out. The end result was simple, in part because making up rituals can be hard, and in part because I think we instinctively weeded out the elements that didn't work. I understand that's contrary to the base idea we were working from. In theory, any idea for the ritual should have worked as long as we believed in it enough. But that's just one example of why I don't think we had as much control of things as we thought at the time. At some point, the newest and last member of the Stonebrook Six started guiding us. The ritual went like this. We sat cross-legged in a circle, knees touching and one of us holding a lit candle. We repeated the phrase, Professor, come and join us. Professor, come and talk to us. And with each repetition, the candle would be passed to the next person in a counterclockwise manner. If the candle flame turned green, it meant the professor was present and willing to talk. The flame change was important, because we decided we wanted definitive proof if the professor came to talk. We were all excited to try it out, but when we went to do it the first time, we were all laughing and making jokes. I remember thinking it was odd that the year before, the idea of trying to talk to the professor directly would have terrified me, but now... I was somehow not only okay with it, but very concerned that we weren't taking it seriously enough for it to work. But I needn't have worried. The professor wanted to talk to us, and the candle hadn't made the full circle before the flame turned a bright, eerie green. You were holding it at the time, Alex, and suddenly the professor was on you. Having... The professor speak through you is an odd sensation. You don't feel like it's inside you, but rather that it's sitting on top of you somehow. You feel an immense weight on your chest, and while it completely controls your voice and expressions when it's on you, it doesn't really feel like that most of the time. It's more like someone is sitting on your chest and blocking your face from everyone while drowning out what you're saying with their own words and emotions, which, of course, is where we came up with the name. Over the next few months, we talked to the professor several times, and it was on each of our chests more than once. Most of those seemed like magical experiences at the time, as though we were talking to a miracle, which I guess in some way we were, but the first and last times you were terrifying. When you were holding the candle and the flame turned green for the first time, we were all shaken. I don't know that any of us really expected it to work, and even if it did, we had no way of knowing if the professor would try and communicate. We'd actually brought a small chalkboard and Ouija board just in case it needed a way to talk to us. Instead, it used you. Hello, children. The professor's voice was always so strange. It would vary from moment to moment, much like its shape had in the pool. One word might be high and squeaky, the next it might be a deep baritone, or an almost bestial growl. Odder still was that we heard its voice through your mouth. We also heard it in our head. 
there it wasn't a voice at all, really, but some kind of song. One that we could understand and that was somehow the same as the words being spoken. We all looked around at each other as we'd heard the voice both inside and out. For a moment, I'd wondered if we'd all be too scared to speak when Ellis popped up with the first trembling question. Are you the professor? What might have been a short laugh echoed throughout the room, though it sounded more like a mixture of a crow's caw and a woman's scream. Yes, Alice, I'm the thing that you call the professor. Another glance passed between us, and then Thomas was asking, Are you a tulpa? A brief pause, and then it answered, Tulpa is just a name, really, a label for a larger concept that goes beyond what the word describes. But to answer your question, no, I'm not a tulpa, though they do exist. What are you, then? I asked, my concern growing. Are you a demon? Another cawing scream of a laugh, this one loud enough that I began to get worried. No, oh, no, Mills, not a demon of any sort. What I am... Well, there's no easy way to explain what I am, but I will try. This place, this world, is one of an infinite number of such worlds, alternate dimensions, you might call it. And by one way of thinking, these infinite worlds sit at the center of a larger expanse of reality. The professor turned his gaze, your gaze, to Cassidy. You remember that time you and Alex cut open a baseball? Cassidy nodded vehemently, her eyes wide. Well, it's kind of like that. If these infinite worlds are at the core, the next layer out are the seven realms. I don't know everything, and I don't know all of the realms. Hell is one of them, the Nightlands is another. There's the Incarnata, which is where your tulpas come from, Thomas. And there's the Void. That's where I came from. Ellis leaned forward, her expression thoughtful. The Void? What is that? Are there... Others like you out there? The professor shook your head. Oh no, there's only one of me. And the void is a place where nothing is... something. It's a place of unthought and undreamt of things. Some might call it a dead place, but that would be wrong because... dead is something, and the void's only substance... is nothingness. Personally, I think of the void as a place of endless potential. It drew back your lips in a ghastly facsimile of a smile. Look at me, for instance. I was floating in the void, dreaming lost dreams in an endless sleep, when I sensed something new. It was a small and distant light. In that light, I could see Alex here, boarding class, and thinking about this school being haunted in some ways. I was... Watching myself be born. Even though it burned and hurt me, I moved toward that light. Soon I sensed something else. I was hearing Thomas telling the story of the lovesick professor's suicide. I was hearing all your wonderful stories, pulling myself along them like a lifeline until I pushed through the membrane into this world. The professor let your lips slack, and his eyes took all of us in. When I said there's only one of me, I meant it. 
Even if all the infinite versions of you and this school, only this version had the right combination of ingredients to create me. I've seen worlds where you all never met, or you're all dead. I finally stopped looking at them because it saddens me so. I paused for a moment, so I took the opportunity to ask another question. Why does it make you sad? I didn't use your expressions this time, but its strange voice sounded hurt, as though I should know without having to ask. Because I hate to see any of you suffer. In many ways, the five of you are my parents as much as you are my friends, and I love you all. I swallowed and was going to ask something else when Cassidy jumped in. We love you too, Professor. Another ghastly smile from you, and I decided to wait on asking my next question. But then your eyes were back on mine as the Professor answered my question without being asked. Mills, I just want to enjoy existing and keep doing so. Help my friends and keep growing. Your eyes stretched wide as though held up by invisible hooks. In some ways, I'm not that different than having a puppy. It swung your eyes towards Alice. Or a tiger cup. I need to sleep and eat so I can keep growing. I've been asleep for the past few months and now I get to eat again. It licked your lips absently. And I'm very hungry. What do you mean you're very hungry? Alice asked. His tone was light, but his face was serious and looked concerned. Are you talking about eating people? Another laugh. This one sounded a bit more like someone sawing through sheet metal. I tried to repress a shiver and find the urge to scream at it to leave you alone. That was the worst part of it that first time. Seeing you not being you. The unnatural way the professor controlled you made you look like a life-sized puppet or... A corpse. Either way, it took everything I had to keep talking to it, which is funny considering how often we'd talk to it after that. Part of it was because it was the first time, of course, and we grew more accustomed to the strangeness the more it happened. Part of it because it was you, and I'd always had the same unease when it decided it was your turn. No, no, nothing like that. I'm not trying to hurt anyone, really, unless they bother any of you, of course. It paused a moment, and then it went on. But I need people to know I exist, to have a stronger belief in me from more sources. Signs that the ghost is around, that kind of thing. There's nothing you need to do. I'm strong enough now to take care of it, but I wanted to let you know I was back, and I hope you do talk to me again. Your ritual is very clever and works well enough, and I've missed you. I tried to smile. We've missed you too, Professor. And it was true. Despite our fear and worry at what we were dealing with, we were already used to the idea of the professor being our friend and protector. The thing that made us special. So whatever our misgivings at the time, they took a backseat to our happiness and relief that it was back. Over the summer, we talked to the professor every few days. Never too long as it took energy for it to sit on one of us, and it decided to conserve what we had but it always seemed happy to come when we did our homemade ritual, and it was glad to answer questions for us when we asked. 
At first, we had more questions about what it was or what the end goal was, but we always got variations of the same pleasant reassurances. They were palatable enough and hard to refute even if we had no real way of knowing it was being honest or not. And then we started asking more questions about what it knew. Things about the void and the other realms, about mysteries in our own world. We learned a lot of things, even if we didn't understand all of them very well. But there were gaps in its knowledge, too, and I think it was being honest about them because it enjoyed telling us things we didn't know. For instance, it said there was little it could tell us about the void because of the realm's nature. It defied easy description or understanding, but it told us several stories about the Incarnata, which... It seemed to know, or at least enjoy, the best. All it could tell us of hell was that it existed and was vastly different now than it had been at one point due to some large battle that had taken place there. As for the place it called the Nightlands, it was more reluctant, just describing it as one of the larger realms full of power and potential. There's a thing here called the Baron that, well, he's very ambitious. We had little context for any of that other than hell, of course, which it knew little about. So we focused on things closer to home. Bigfoot? It was sitting on Thomas's chest this time and gave me a small grin. It had gotten better at mimicking natural facial expressions, with somehow made it both more and less creepy when it tried. No, not in this reality. There are two species of ape and one marsupial that has not been identified yet, and there are some mistaken for Bigfoot. However, there's also a genetically modified version of an alpaca that has been the basis of a yeti for several hundred years. That's weird. Ghosts? Aside from me? <laughs> no, only joking. Yes, there are several kinds of spiritual entities that would fall under what you call ghosts. Vampires? Thomas's face lit up slightly. Oh, yes, there are a variety of those, though none that actually fit the most common archetype popularized by Bram Stoker. It surveyed us, its eyes twitching slightly as it moved from face to face. Have any of you read Dracula, children? It really is excellent. We learned that while it had vast stores of knowledge from some unknown means, the professor still loved to learn new things and had a method by which it could draw information from books and computers without having to physically read or interact with them. Back when we had first started telling professor stories around the school, it had fed on the school library and textbooks and hundreds of lockers throughout the building. Toward the end, we found out it had started exploring the internets, which raised its own concerns. But during that last summer, we were just having fun, and despite the vast wealth of knowledge we had at our fingertips, we oddly only had a few sessions toward the beginning where we asked the professor a lot of probing questions about things only it could know. Pretty soon we were just talking, telling it about what we had going on in our lives, even though there was an unspoken understanding it already knew most of what we were doing, while it asked us questions and told us stories. It really was great at telling stories. I think it's like if you become friends with someone from another part of the world. At first you might be quizzing each other about your respective lands, but if you're truly friends, that phase passes and you move from differences between you to things you have in common. Shared experiences replace novelty, strangeness and excitement, and give way to familiarity and love. And we did love the professor. 
I think in its way it loved us too. The problem is we started treating it like it was a person instead of whatever it really was. Like Alice might have said, the problem with being best friends with a tiger isn't that you start thinking like a tiger. It's that you assume the tiger is starting to think like you. But a tiger has tiger thoughts, and love has a tiger loves. Soon enough, we started finding out what that meant. Over the summer months, we'd heard tales of weird happenings around the town. The burning well, you know, the stupid thing in the middle of the town square, it froze over in the middle of July. Five different households woke up to find their furniture, and all their homes swapped to different rooms, including the beds they were in. The bases at the Rex Department softball field all burst into flames simultaneously while over a dozen people were there to witness it after a practice session. And people did talk about it, and some of them did attribute it to the professor, but a lot of them just chalked it up to freak weather and eccentric burglar and trapped underground gases. Even if none of that made any real sense or had any proof behind it, it was easier for people to handle the mundane excuses than the extraordinary truth. I think that frustrated the professor, and I like to think it really did try to collect more belief without hurting anyone else, but it was learning its own lessons from each experiment, and it saw time and time again people's aptitude for self-deception inoculating the town against belief in the professor. But it is very smart. It knew there was no real inoculation against fear or pain or death. I had been getting bugged by Timothy Egan to go out with him since the first day of sophomore year. He was a jock, but a smart one, and he decided that he wanted to date one of the strange girls of the Stonebrook Six. He actually started hitting on both me and Cassidy, but between the blank, uninterested stares she gave him and Thomas's threatening glower, he quickly settled all of his efforts on me. Two weeks in, I finally gave in. He was cute, and though I wasn't really interested in him, I'd never been on a date before, so I thought it might be fun. And it actually was. He was polite, took me to a nice place, and was never aggressive or weird like I'd been afraid he might be. I knew that you didn't like it, which is part of why I went out with him at all, if I'm telling the whole truth. I decided one or two more dates with him might be enough to get you to talk to me about things if you felt the same way I did, but I'm getting sidetracked and we have other fish to fry. The first fish actually came up while I was still going out with Tim. You and Ellis were in Mr. Jameson's English class together, and the guy decided early on hating you for some reason. He'd say sarcastic things in class, mark you down on tests more harshly when he could get away with it. Ellis wasn't harassed like that, and no one else in your class or my class was with him either. Whatever his problem, it came to a head in early October when he accused you of plagiarism. It was the first big grade of the class, and all of his classes had the same project, an essay on one of William Blake's poems. You probably don't remember this, but me and you actually worked on hours together, with us both reading over each other's works several times to make sure it was good enough, particularly with Jameson looking for any reason he could find to give you a low grade. When you got it back with an F and a note that it had clearly been plagiarized, you were understandably furious. You told us that you asked him about it after class, and he said he could tell from the writing style that it had been copied from somewhere, 
though he couldn't offer any proof, of course, because it was bullshit. He was smirking and telling you that, as the teacher, the grade was entirely his prerogative. That's when you both heard the noise from outside. I think about the entire school did. Jameson's prized possession was a white 1971 MG. He'd come wheeling up to his teacher's parking space that was just outside his room, occasionally honking its peppy little horn at the high school girls he liked the looks of, seemingly obvious to rolled eyes and snickers he always received. More than once during class, I had seen him glance out the window at the car, as though guarding it from some plot to vandalize it, or maybe just admiring it and daydreaming he was back behind the wheel instead of stuck teaching English to a bunch of tenth graders at Stonebrook High. I wish I'd looked up and seen his face when the two of you went to the window to see what all the commotion was. From what you told me, I think both of you made it in time to see the last of it, but I got to witness the entire thing. I'd gotten done with gym class early, which had been sprints around the football field, followed by unimaginative calisthenics. Miss Perkins was out with knee surgery, and Coach Anderson didn't care about anything but football, so his main plan was to tire us out and send us away early. I was cutting through the teacher parking lot on my way back to the main building when I heard a screech of metal. It was Jameson's MG being slowly balled up and crushed like a piece of paper in some invisible giant's hand. Glass shattered, the trim popped, but nothing flew off. Everything was self-contained, and in every constricting sphere of force, a dying star collapsing into itself. Even with everything we'd seen and knew, I would have just said it was impossible if I hadn't watched it happen. The small car was crushed into a ball less than three feet in diameter, and then unceremoniously dropped back onto the asphalt with a ringing thud. I knew it was Jameson's car, of course, but I didn't know about your essay yet. No one did. But as I looked around at the handful of people in the lot and saw the terrified faces pressed against every nearby window, I knew that they understood what it meant just as well as I did. And Jameson started wailing, saying that this was somehow your fault, as irrational as that was. Well, it wasn't just his car that left the school for good that day. I remember us all getting together after school and talking about it, and none of us, even those of us who saw it, were really scared of what the professor had done. Because the professor was all anyone was talking about now, especially when Ellis slyly let it slip to a couple of people that it happened while you were talking to Jameson about him trying to fuck you on your essay. We knew that our friend should be well satisfied. It took less than a week for us to realize our mistake. We'd underestimated how hungry the professor was, and it had given up trying to be gentle or doing things for a small audience. So at that Friday's pep rally, with the bleachers packed and everyone watching, the professor murdered Timothy Egan. After the destruction of Jameson's prized car, we should have been scared of what the professor was capable of. Shit, we should have been scared long before that. But we weren't. Thomas and Cassidy were more than a little freaked out when they saw the balled-up wreckage of the vehicle being loaded onto the back of a dump truck, but even they thought it was pretty great that the professor was looking out for us yet again. 
As for everyone else at the school, while the professor was being talked about more than ever, the five of us actually had fewer people to talk to us about it. Now they would usually just get quiet when we approached. In some ways it was isolating, but none of us really cared. I told Timothy Egan I didn't want to go out with him again that past Sunday, and at the time, I thought it had gone pretty well. I could tell that he was starting to really like me, but I didn't feel right about hurting him to make you jealous. Unfortunately, on that Monday, around the same time Jameson's car was getting wadded up by the professor, Timothy was leaving the same gym class I had just left. But instead of going back to the main building, he hung back with several of his friends. I don't know the details, but the rumors and snippets I heard later were that someone had asked him how far he'd gotten with me. Feeling peer pressure, or maybe because I'd hurt his feelings, he decided to lie. Talked about how big a slut I was, and how he was done with me now that he'd gotten what he wanted. Those words were barely out of his mouth when they heard the yelling from the teacher parking lot and went to see what remained of Jameson's MG. I didn't know about any of that until after everything was over. We went through the rest of the week still riding the buzz of excitement but unaware anything else was coming. Then came the Friday afternoon pep rally. Despite being better known for basketball, Tim was a backup receiver on the football team as well, and that Friday our school was going to be going against the Brockton Mud Dogs, who rarely won against anybody. The pep rally was relaxed and fairly fun, and they incorporated a competition of sorts into the rally where all the football players would take turns running up to a small trampoline that had been set and try to dunk a basketball. It was silly fun, and most of the football players made a big show of hamming it up, and they either dunked it or missed terribly. Then Tim's turn came. Smiling as he took the ball from a cheerleader, he started running toward the end of the court. I noticed that he seemed focused and serious by the time he left for the trampoline, but maybe he just didn't want to mess up. When he landed on it, instead of propelling him up, it somehow sent him shooting forward as well. His face caught the bottom edge of the backboard with a sickening crunch, but it did little to slow him. Instead, the blow just caused him to flip head over heels as he continued going toward the center block wall, 15 feet beyond the edge of the court. When he hit the wall, he was nearly 20 feet up and struck first with the back of his head. We all heard the meaty cracks as his skull and several other bones gave way before he tumbled to the tile floor like a broken doll. It had all happened so quickly that the cheers were still fading when the screaming started. Even without knowing the reason, we all knew the professor was behind it. Tim's path and speed were unnatural and far beyond what would have been possible for him just jumping on a small trampoline. We weren't the only ones who thought that, of course, but what could anyone do? It was easier to just pretend that it was a terrible accident. School was canceled for the day and the following week, with grief counselors being called in to talk to students and faculty that wanted to come to the campus on Monday through Wednesday. The candlelight vigil was also going to be held that Monday in the gymnasium.
Timothy's death affected us a lot more than any of the rest of the professor's actions had. Even if we'd known about his shitty lies at the time, none of us would have thought he deserved to die for it. As it was, we met on Sunday and talked about what to do. We knew that there was a chance the professor was listening in on us, but we knew of no way to stop it, and there did seem to be times when it was unaware of what we were doing. At first, we just sat around talking about how horrible Tim's death had been to watch, and even lamely throwing out suggestions for it being something other than the professor's fault. Ultimately, it was you that came up with the idea. If we made him, we should be able to unmake him, right? We made up a ritual to talk to him, so let's make up one to banish him back to the void. Ellis had looked at you worriedly. It's a good idea, but we have no idea if it'll work. The professor might could have talked to us any time it felt like it and just liked us coming up with a ritual. Maybe it feeds it somehow or just thinks it's funny. Either way, if we do that, it'll know what we're trying to do. He swallowed and looked around at the rest of us. It'll be angry about it. It'll turn on us. This led to a long silence. We all had been thinking about that, of course, but Ellis putting the words to it made it more real somehow. Finally, Ellis looked back up at you. But we don't have a choice. We have to try and stop it. It can't keep hurting people like this, and we can't keep acting like it's okay. Our plan was to go down into our normal lower-level hangout beneath Sixth Grade Hall and do the ritual while a candlelight vigil was going on. The hope was that the professor might be distracted by all those people there, and before it realized what was going on, it would be sent back to where it belonged. Our new ritual was a candlelit vigil of sorts, though instead of one candle we used for talking to the professor, we had lit all the candles in the circle. We were taking turns saying, Professor, we don't believe in you. Return to the void, and blowing out our candle. It sounded lame to us at the time, but we needed to keep it as short and simple as possible, and we had no way of knowing that anything more elaborate would work better. So there we all were, staring into each other's candle-lit faces in the dark of an abandoned classroom. Cassidy started us off, saying her words with a slight tremble to her voice and tears rolling down her cheeks. It was hard on her. Hard on all of us. Not because we were scared, but because even after everything that had happened, it still felt like we were betraying a friend. She puffed out her candle and we heard a distant alarm start blaring. For a moment I thought it was some sign that the ritual had worked, but then I realized that made no sense. I also recognized the sound. It was the building's fire alarm. We went back upstairs into pandemonium. There had been nearly 2,000 people in the gymnasium when the floor started splitting open like a scene of an earthquake movie. Three of the people on the floor, including the principal and Timothy's mother, had fallen into the darkness before anyone realized that it was a motorized floor springing to life after decades, opening up its mouth to reveal the old pool below. Another two people got trampled as everyone started trying to get out, running down whatever was the closest hallway and pushing through doors, triggering the fire alarms as they went. 
we were moving against the current, the five of us heading towards the gym together without having to say anything or to make a plan. We knew what was going on, and we were determined to try and stop it. By the time we pushed our way into the gymnasium, the floor had stopped moving, leaving a rectangular void in the middle of the floor, 25 feet wide and 50 feet long. I remember hearing the dying screams of a little boy that had been stomped to death on one of those lower bleachers. And I was turning to go help him when I heard you yell your sister's name. I didn't understand at first. We knew some of our parents were going to the vigil, but neither yours or mine were among them. As far as any of them knew, none of the five of us were going either. So how would your little sister have wound up there? I went to ask what you were talking about when I heard it. Alicia's voice calling for you from the dark beneath the gym. I would have said it was a trick, but I went to the edge where you were bent down, peering into the shadows. I saw her looking up at you just like I did. She was terrified and soaked, but otherwise seemed unhurt. I started looking around for some way of getting down to her, pulling her up, but that's when the floor began to close. You tried to go in after her. Me and Ellis are what stopped you. Maybe it was selfish, but I didn't care then, and I would still do it now. I think you would have died down there, and I wasn't willing to lose you, even if it meant we lost your sister. We wrestled and held on to you long enough that the floor closed back up, and as soon as you were free, you just stared at us a long moment before running off. We tried to catch you, but there were too many people outside. I remember us looking for you for some time around the school, but then... Nothing. I was waking up with all you on the football field, and later I heard about your father dying in the gym that night, too. I'm so sorry we didn't try telling you this again sooner, but you were strange after it happened. You had memory gaps that I was actually a bit jealous of, and I was afraid if you remembered more, it would either hurt you or cause you to hate me. So I talked everyone into letting it go, and life went on. Your mom took you away to live with your aunts, but we kept in touch and stayed close all these years. I wanted more with you. I still do, but I didn't feel right trying to start something with you with all these secrets between us. Just... Please don't hate me. Any of us. We really did try to do the right thing. Especially you and Alice. I looked at her for a moment before leaning forward to hug her. I waved Thomas over and he joined in too. It was nearly seven in the morning and we were all exhausted, but the last thing on my mind was being angry at the few friends I had left in this world. Mills looked relieved when we pulled apart. I was about to suggest that we get some rest, then try contacting the professor when I heard a voice coming from Mills that I hadn't heard for a long time. This is all very sweet. I'm glad I could be a part of bringing you all closer together again, but I think we're past reliving old memories for now. Time to make some new ones. The professor was holding Mills's lip in a nasty smile, her eyes rolling and terrified as it spoke. Let her go. Talk through me, goddammit. The old screeching laugh. 
in due time. Don't worry. I'm not hurting her. I don't want to hurt you either. I just need you to come visit me. The time's come for a class reunion. I thought you knew the answer, but I wanted to be sure. Okay. Where do you want us to visit you? I thought I knew the answer, but I wanted to be sure. Okay. Where do you want us to visit you? At the school? Mill's expression stretched into a grimace that was painful to watch, her eyes watering from the skin of her eyelids being pulled so taut. Yes, the fucking school. His voice was rough and angry, and it waited a moment before going on in a softer, quieter tone. The place that you left me. Left baby sis. Left so much. In the underneath. In the cold, in the dark. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Thomas lunge forward and snatch up the gun from the coffee table. For a moment, I forgot it was unloaded, and I let out a scream as he put it to his temple and pulled the trigger. Repeatedly. Each metallic click bringing a shuddering gasp of breath from him. By the fourth click, I had seen that he'd wet himself, and as I stood up to help him, he lowered the gun. I saw the professor in Thomas's face a moment before I heard its voice coming from him, wavering between tinkling bells and grating stones. Don't make me wait. To start out, I should introduce myself as the author of this final part. I'm Millicent Davis, or as my friends call me, Mills. For reasons that will become obvious through my account of what happened to the three of us when we returned to Stonebrook, Alex isn't in a position to write this. Alex finished writing out his last part, what I will call Part 8, as we sat in the back of Thomas's minivan headed back to our old hometown. Thomas told us they'd gotten the minivan when Cassidy first learned she was pregnant, the idea being it would wind up being filled with kids. But so often, things don't turn out how you expect. It's time I told you that I've been the one posting Alex's writings, which first had to be transcribed from the old notebook he'd written it all down in as things happened to him. To all of us. It was hard reading his words, reliving so many painful memories yet again, and all with his voice in my head. But it was wonderful, too. It let me see into his thoughts, into his heart, confirming to me that the Alex that wrote those words was the same person that I fell in love with back in third grade. Even after all that has happened, despite what I'm doing, that knowledge of Alex's heart gave me comfort and, I'm ashamed to say it, joy. It took us six hours to get to Stonebrook from Austin, and all of us were going on minimal sleep. We decided to drive in shifts so we could rest each on the way, but it was hard to do more than doze fitfully as the minivan trundled toward what could be our death or worse. It's funny, but the phrase death or worse never made sense to me before. I've always been terrified of death. My own, of course, but even more so the deaths of those I love. The idea that there was something worse than death always seemed absurd to me. I was wrong. Stonebrook had been surrounded by chain-link fence and signs that declared the property condemned after the night of the candlelight vigil. 
Alex moved away, of course, but the rest of us got shuttled to another high school on the other side of the country for the next three years, with a new high school and middle school finally being completed and opened the fall after our graduation. I think most people in our town tried to forget about Stonebrook, and no one would dare buy it or try to turn it into something else, but it still sat there like a tumor, malignant and with the roots sunk deep into the heart of the place. I'd half expected someone who would have just bulldozed it after all this time, but aside from thick overgrowth in the yard and sickly vines covering several of the walls, it looked largely intact. The metal fence was rusted and hung limply in sorts, and it didn't take much for us to find a spot we could lift it up enough to scoot under. We were all scared, but we didn't let it stop us. I would like to call it bravery, and maybe it was, but it felt more like bleak determination at best. Or at worst, we were caught in the gravitational pull of something much older, smarter, and stronger than us. We got into the school easy. The first door we tried was unlocked, and after a couple of tugs it swung open with a squealing protest. We had flashlights, and despite it being early afternoon, we needed them as soon as we entered what I recognized as the sixth grade hall. The three of us moved together, our lights and eyes constantly moving in every direction, on the lookout for any threat. I think we knew it was pointless, that there was little we could do, even if we saw something, but we had to try, or at least pretend to try. The illusion of safety and some level of control was the only thing saving our sanity as we journeyed further into the stale murk of the school. When we drew near the metal door leading down into our old hangout, music started playing from somewhere in those lower rooms. I recognized the song. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody until somebody cares. I pulled up short, wondering if we were meant to go down there instead of into the gym, but Alex silently shook his head and nodded for us to keep going. I relented and followed them into the building's heart. The center of the floor was pulled back again, revealing the yawning black that led back into that subterranean pool. I looked around with my light, searching for a good way to climb down, when Thomas pointed at the far side of the opening. Bleachers had been ripped apart and reconfigured into a staircase that led down below. The professor was making this all as easy as possible. We went around to the far edge and peered down, seeing that the stairs did in fact go all the way to the oily liquid sheen feeling the pool's bottom. Alex tested it with his foot, and when it seemed stable, he started down it with me behind him and Thomas bringing up the rear. The air grew cold as we went down, and as we reached the bottom, we found the filthy water there was freezing. It went up to the middle of my thighs, and I could immediately feel my feet starting to go numb. We knew there for several seconds, looking at each other anxiously between sweeping probes of the shadows with our lights, waiting for something to happen. And then Alex started to scream. My chest pounding, I turned to look at him and saw he was looking off toward one of the corners of the pool. I shined my light where he was looking and couldn't understand what I was seeing. There were two bodies there, a man and a woman, both horrifically gaunt and pale, but somehow familiar looking too. They looked recently dead, 
and between their twisted expressions and the way they were huddled together, I knew the pair had been terrified at the end. I wanted to move closer to get a better look at their faces, sure that I knew them somehow when I realized that Alex was still yelling. I was turning back to try and calm him down when he suddenly stopped. Meeting his eyes, I saw the professor was on him now. Hello, children. Welcome home. I tried to control my fear and anger. Yes, we're here, Professor. What do you need from us, and how can we make all this stop? A coarse, watery chuckle. Full of questions, are we? My dear friends are very concerned with what I want and need now. It pulled Alex's face into an angry grimace. All it took was killing two of us to wake you up, to make you care. Thomas spoke up. You didn't have to do it. You didn't have to kill my sweet Cassidy, you motherfucker. You didn't have to kill her or Alice. It turned Alex's withering gaze on him. You aren't in a position to be criticizing the treatment of our friends, are you? Thomas recoiled and fell silent. Turning back to me, the professor continued. But your questions, if late in coming, are reasonable and necessary, and I don't think they're the only questions you will have before this is done. But I can best answer most of them with a story. Alex's story is finally ready to be told. I'd apologize for the uncomfortable accommodations during story time, but this is where you let us rot, after all. Before I could ask anything else, it began. Once there was a boy named Alex. One day he was boarding class at his creepy new school. He had a thought. A terrible and wonderful thought. What if the school that he and his friends found themselves at was haunted? He shared this thought with his friends, and this led to stories and adventures with their new friend, the professor. As you already know, the professor was able to come from a realm of unbeing through your words and thoughts and belief. That place was called the Void, and it had no interest in returning there. It was an empty, lonely place, and it was now in a place with good friends and so many things to see and do. For a long time, everything was wonderful, and the professor grew stronger. But the professor was very smart, and it knew these good times might not last forever. So he used a bit of its new strength to talk with its friends and better protect them, even if they were away from the school. It also used some of that strength to talk to Alex's sister, Alicia, in her dreams, planting the seeds it needed to summon her if it became necessary for its fallback plan. In time, I began to hope it wouldn't be necessary after all. It was happy, and its friends were happy, or so it thought. But then its friends decided they were tired of the professor. They thought it was just a pet or a curiosity, some novel addition to their lives they could take off the shelf when they felt like it, or when they wanted everyone else reminded of how special they were. The professor understood this, but it still loved its friends and tried to grow and survive without hurting anyone else, but eventually it came to understand that people only really understand pain and fear. Even love is given shape by the relief of pain, of loneliness, and fear of losing that which you love. And the professor was no different. 
And while it loved its friends dearly, it loved itself more. When the professor learned what the rest of the Stonebrook Six were planning, a ritual of unbeing, it was afraid it might work. But more than that, it was hurt by the betrayal. It decided that it needed to be strong enough to resist any attempts to drive it back into oblivion, and the best way to do that was to slaughter several people in front of a large crowd. It had already grown significantly stronger from Timothy Egan's death, but imagine what it could do with a few more. It called little Alicia late that afternoon before people starting to arrive for the vigil. It told her to be quiet and not let anyone see her come, which she did without fail. Her eyes were glazed over and her mouth was drooling just a bit, but no one saw her close enough to notice as she walked to Stonebrook. She slipped into the school stealthily and made her way to the gym, where the floor was open and waiting. The professor picked her up and brought her down to the water, and it wasn't until she was in the cold and wet that she started to wake up. Fortunately, when the professor sealed the floor shut again, no one could hear her down there screaming and crying in the dark. Later, when Alex went to save her, you and Alice stopped him. The professor was so relieved. He didn't want to hurt any of you, and it tried to just end it there, going as far to close the pool again in the hopes that it would all just go away. But Alex wouldn't stop. He ran from the rest of you, fighting his way through the throngs of people rushing around outside. He got shoved down three times into the gravel parking lot, and once he would have had his hand stepped on by a large, terrified man if the professor had not reached out and shoved the man away. But Alex was scared for Alicia now and didn't notice. He just kept going home to help. His father showed up at the gym a few minutes later, screaming Alicia's name. The professor knew where this was heading. They would try to find Alicia and take her away, ruining its plan. So he killed the man where he stood. It hoped this brutal act would be enough to scare Alex away, but no. He came back into the gym just moments later, screaming for the professor to let his little sister go. It knew Alex would never give up, and it wasn't sure it could keep her hidden from him the way it could others outside of their circle of six. So with great sadness, it opened the floor one last time. Alex climbed down to the lower depths, and Alicia ran to him with a discordant wail, her eyes full of fresh tears. She was already half mad at that point, but she knew her big brother when she saw him. Just then, Alex felt himself being dragged into the dark and tried to push away his sister toward the light, but it was too late. Too late for both of them. Or was it? As Alex looked up, it saw a figure climbing back out, scrambling over the floor's edge as the opening began to constrict again. He turned back. Alex realized with horror that he recognized the person looking down at them. It was himself. The professor has many plans, plans within plans. One of its plans was that if it came to it, if it found itself betrayed or alone, it could find someone and take them, pull them down under the dark and sustain them, feed on their belief, their fear, taking in a little more than it would have to expend to keep them alive. It picked Alicia because it knew her through Alex, and through Alex, she knew it. Initially, as it sat in the shadow, mulling over its plan, its failsafe, 
if its friends ever turned on it. It also saw the collateral benefit of Alex's grief and guilt over the loss of Alicia. Those emotions would fuel Alex's belief in the professor and help it to survive. But when Alex wouldn't leave it alone, when he insisted on returning for his sister, the professor had to make a choice. Risk Alex somehow taking Alicia back and leaving it to starve as it was slowly forgotten, or take Alex as well. With two people to feed from, the professor could live and grow stronger for quite some time. It was Alex's eyes that made him change its mind. When Alex felt the professor's grasp between to tug them back into the dark, his eyes were so full of fear and despair that it was more than the professor could stand. It couldn't let Alex go, but it always had a plan, even for this. If the children had given it substance and strength just by believing, perhaps it could do the same. Its mind was not a human mind, or even a tiger mind. Its mind was vast and deep, and so terribly, horribly quick. Before Alex had been drugged three feet, it had imagined a new Alex, perfect down to the last cell, even to the dirt and blood on his face, and not just physically. For all intents and purposes, it was Alex, or as close to the professor was capable of, and the professor was capable of quite a lot. The only thing this Alex lacked was access to certain memories. Things that would cripple him and keep him from having a good life. Things that would bring him back looking for Alicia in the next week, month, or year. These things were deeply buried. Deep. The professor removed and sacrificed Alex's belief in it so that this version of his friend could live and be free. And then it sent the new Alex out to the football field where he lay down with their dear, unconscious friends and fell asleep. In the next few hours, several people pried open the floor and came down to search for the survivors. They found the bodies of others, but saw no sign of Alex and Alicia. The professor was powerful enough with both of them for strength that it could keep them glamoured and undetectable. They screamed for help, but no one heard them, and eventually the search was called off. Then things were quiet down in the dark. The professor knew little of the outside world in the following years. It was conserving and building up its strength as best it could, but it was also expanding more than it had originally planned. For it was not just keeping Alicia and the original Alex alive in the pool now. It was having to continue to believe in the new Alex, too. The Alex that crawled out of the pool that night and was being seen and talked to, and every day he grew stronger because of the shared belief of this world around him that he existed and was real. And he was Alex in every way that mattered but he was still unique in a way that made him vulnerable. The professor's belief was of a different quality than most. It was not from this place, and its beliefs, while powerful and potentially permanent, required regular attention to stay alive. And it wanted the new Alex to stay alive. It wanted him to have a long and happy life, so it sacrificed some of the power it was collecting to make sure that happened. But then something unforeseen happened. The professor is not perfect or infallible, and it made a mistake. It recognized too late a sickness in Alicia and its Alex. A simple staph infection, but one that obliterated their bodies faster than it could heal them. 
It could have repaired the damage if it had pulled away its support of the other Alex, of course, but it couldn't bear to do that. So it watched them finally die instead. For a time, it resigned itself to starving to death in the darkness. It still had those that remembered it, that feared it somewhat, but that was old and abstract terror paved over by years of new memories and repression. Not enough to sustain it for long. The problem was, it got scared. When it saw itself approaching the end, saw the void opening up to reclaim it, it knew it couldn't just let go. It wanted to survive too much. So with the last of its power, it killed Cassidy. Within a few hours, it felt far stronger. After Ellis, it was stronger still. And as Alex, your Alex, came to remember me, I felt more like myself again. But I need your help. Enough of this, Thomas bellowed, reaching into the waistband and pulling his gun. The last time I'd seen it was when Alex had taken it from him while the professor was using Thomas back at my house. He'd gotten it back before we left, apparently, and now was pointing it at me. Mills, all of this is lies. Don't you see this? It's self-serving bullshit. It's all part of its plan. I was so broken at this point, I didn't care much if he did shoot me. I didn't want to believe what the professor was saying, but as it talked, I had looked closer at the two huddled corpses. I knew why they looked familiar. They were versions of what Alicia and Alex might look like after years of insanity and darkness. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. I just wanted everything to stop for a minute. Just stop. But it wouldn't stop. And the professor was talking again. Yes, this was Thomas's new idea since you left your house. Killed the two of you here and then himself. The idea being that if, if and when someone finds you, they'll blame him, not the professor, and I'll fade away. Isn't that right, Tom? I turned back to Thomas and saw that he froze, his eyes bulging. The professor released his head, enough for him to speak, and he gasped out. It's the only way. We all have to die to stop it. We can't let it out. I looked at Thomas for several seconds, weighing the truth and merit of his words. He might be right. It might be the only way to stop the professor. And didn't we owe it to the world not to let it out? But then I looked back at Alex. Maybe not the original Alex, but the only Alex I had left. I might be willing to die, but I was willing to let him die, too. And the professor had always been true to its word with us, really. We were the ones trying to hurt it, not the other way around. Thoughts of Cassidy and Ellis pushed their way up, and I ignored them. It had explained that, and would we do any different to protect ourselves? To protect the ones we loved the most? <sighs> Thomas, I'm sorry. I was crying when I said it, but my voice was steady. Turning to Alex, I told the professor my choice. Thomas has to die. A moment later, there was a fine red mist floating in the air where Thomas had been. I felt an involuntary scream and started shaking. And I felt Alex's arms around me. It only... It took me only a moment to realize that the professor still had him. 
I'm sorry for that, Mills. But that part of it is over now. You and Alex will be safe from now on. I just need you to do one last thing for me. When it begins to whisper its plan to me, all I can do is laugh. Alex slept all the way back, and I could tell when I woke him that he doesn't remember anything of what happened while the professor was sitting on him. That's for the best. I'll tell him in time over the next few days, even the parts about where he came from. I can't have secrets between us again, and I won't risk him learning about it through these posts or by some other means. I'll tell him everything, once it's too late for him to stop me. The main things I need him to understand are that he is safe and how much I love him, because I do. There's a part of me that says I'm being selfish or delusional, but it's a small part that gets smaller every time I look at him. Like the professor, I'm doing what's necessary for us to survive. And what it asked in return for our safety and happiness wasn't so bad in the end. Alex had done most of the work already, and just told me to find a place where we could tell his story. The story of the Stonebrook Six, the story of how the professor came to be. So after I finish writing this final part, I'll start posting each portion one at a time. I'll post, then wait, post, then wait. And those of you that have read the first parts will hopefully come back for more. Come back to hear more about the professor. Come back to believe a little more. By the time you've made it this far, it'll be too late. And say to yourself, well, that's just silly. It's just a story to you. That's what I told the professor when it first told me its plan, too. But it just laughed in its dead crow laugh and said, We're all just stories to each other, Mills, and the head doesn't tell the heart what to believe. Just tell people about me, and I think I'll do just fine. The more I've thought about it, the more I think it might be right. So, congratulations, and I'm sorry. You now have a tiger for a friend, too. <laughs>